Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Diana Heaney. Her new book is titled Toward a Pragmatist Metaethics. It has just been published with Routledge. Heaney is assistant professor of philosophy at Fordham University. The pragmatist tradition in philosophy tends to focus around the pioneering work of its founding trio, Charles Peirce, William James, and John Dewey, who together proposed and developed a distinctive kind of naturalist empiricism. Though they disagreed sharply over central issues concerning truth and meaning, the original pragmatists shared a commitment to the primacy of practice and human experience and a corresponding distaste for abstract philosophical theorizing. It comes as no surprise, then, that pragmatist work in value theory tends to focus on normative and applied ethics. There's very little in classical pragmatism that one would count as meta-ethics. But philosophical landscapes change, and the area of meta-ethics is at present vibrant with philosophical debates that matter for moral practice, despite their being abstract. It turns out that getting a workable, attractive conception of moral life requires one to address the technical questions asked by meta-ethicists. Accordingly, contemporary pragmatists need to work out a pragmatist meta-ethics. In Toward a Pragmatist Meta-Ethics, Diana Heaney gathers crucial philosophical resources from the classical pragmatist tradition in providing a distinctively pragmatist defense of moral cognitivism and metaethical generalism. Her book combines a nuanced reading of the history of pragmatism with a sophisticated intervention in contemporary metaethical theory. There's a lot to talk about, so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Diana Heaney. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? Good, and you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, uh, for downloading our podcast. My guest today is Diana Heaney of Fordham University. She's just published a fantastic book titled Toward a Pragmatist Meta-Ethics. Um, as the title indicates, this book uh, draws upon the lineage of pragmatist philosophy to develop a distinctive approach to some central meta-ethical questions. And meta-ethics is an area of philosophy that, um, uh, at least among the classical pragmatists, didn't really receive a whole lot of attention. And it should also be added that a lot's happened in meta-ethics in the past decade or so. Um, and so uh, this is a book that attempts to uh, interject 
some pragmatist themes into those um, contemporary meta-ethical debates. Um, there's a lot to talk about, a lot of interesting stuff uh, uh, to cover. Um, but uh, first, uh, why don't we begin where we usually do uh, with our author. Uh, Diana, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Bob. Uh, so I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada, which is on the north shore of Lake Superior, for those who have no idea where that is, which is probably just about everybody. Yes. There. <laughs> Good. There's a 1926 painting by a group of seven artists, Lauren Harris, which is titled North Shore Lake Superior. And mm -hmm. that part of the country pretty well looks the same now that it did in 1926. It's one notch above desolate, uh, beautiful, rugged, good place for the life of the mind. When I was 16, my parents moved west to Calgary, Alberta, and I decided to stay in Ontario. I started my studies at the University of Ottawa as a biochemistry major, which I stuck out for three years only because I took all of my electives in the philosophy department and spent more time rowing on the Ottawa River than studying biochemistry. The summer before my senior year, I tried to register for a course in the history of analytic philosophy and was denied on the grounds that I had taken my quota of arts electives. So I promptly switched majors. At Ottawa, <laughs> it's worked out well so far. At Ottawa, I took courses with a pair of pragmatists, Glenn Tiller and Paul Forster. And of course, I wanted to go to graduate school, but I anticipated that my philosophy degree, full as it was with such electives as advanced analytical chemistry and differential calculus, might be regarded by admissions committees with some suspicion. So I decided to follow my parents west to Calgary and keep taking philosophy courses as a post-degree student. Before I left, I asked Glenn Tiller for a suggested reading list. That list included Cheryl Mizak's Truth in the End of Inquiry and George Santayana's Skepticism and Animal Faith, two books I've circled back to countless times since. At the University of Calgary, I took several classes with Mark Magotti, another pragmatist, who helped me to navigate the road to graduate school. I took a two-year master's degree at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which was a hugely important two years for me. For the first time in my academic career, I didn't have a full-time job. As an undergrad and postgrad student, I had worked in fast food and retail as a store manager and a running coach. And in Saskatoon, for the first time, I was just a student. In addition, the department at Saskatchewan was an ideal place to take a terminal MA. The faculty to a person were wonderfully supportive. And I wound up writing my MA thesis supervised by Eric Dayton on Hearst's view of the role of belief in science. At that time, I took epistemology and philosophy of science to be my main interest. But as my thought evolved, I came to see that it was really the ethics of belief that was holding my interest, and I moved steadily towards metaethics. After the MA, I was admitted to the doctoral program at the University of Toronto in an enormous and boisterous cohort, which made for another excellent grad school environment. I chose Toronto to work with Cheryl Mizak. She was university provost at the time and incredibly busy with her own administrative and scholarly work, but always made time for my work on top of her own. Studying with Cheryl, I learned the important lesson that it's better to be right than to be original. I was fortunate to have a terrific and well-rounded committee, two pragmatists, Cheryl along with Henry Jackman, and two people in value theory, Sergio Tenenbaum and Andrew Seffielli. After completing my PhD, I got hired at Fordham University here in New York City, which is where you find me enjoying the quiet of summertime on campus. <laughs> Can I ask about the running coach stuff? Yeah, so I worked uh, at this Canadian company called The Running Room, which is a genius of a business model. They sell very expensive running shoes and running classes. And so if you come in and sign up for a running class, which is typically 10 to 16 weeks, 
you get all kinds of discounts on things in the store. But then, of course, you're in the store twice a week for the running class. So you keep buying more things. But it's also, in addition to the financial side of things, it was a really wonderful job because uh, it allowed me to see people really changing their lives for the better. I would have people who in week one could not run for one minute, who at the end of 10 weeks could run five kilometers, which is a pretty respectable distance. Do you still run? Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm training uh, in, in you know, a very lazy and slow way for the New York Marathon. <laughs> An odd question. Um, so I, I know a lot of philosophers who are runners mm-hmm. and who think that um, running is important for philosophy or for, think, for philosophical thinking. Is this true? I believe that this is true. Uh, in my case, I think that I can't slow my brain down until I speed my body up. So running oh. allows me to get my brain and my body in sync. And I probably completed most of my interesting projects uh, on the run. I have run a marathon for every degree I've finished. Wow, that's interesting. Oh, maybe I should start running. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry? If you get the police involved, there's incentive. <laughs> well, yeah, I've done that before, unfortunately. So your book divides into two parts with a bunch of chapters in each part. But the first part is largely historical in nature. It's an orientation to pragmatism as a developing philosophical idiom or, or, or framework. Now, although I take it that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with um, pragmatism, especially in its uh, classical variety, maybe you can, or maybe it would be good to begin with you telling us a little bit about your understanding or your particular way of, of uh, telling the, the sort of historical story about the early pragmatism. Sure. So the beginning of the book is historical, and for those who wanted to get straight to the meta-ethics, this may seem like an unnecessary detour, but I think that part of what is so interesting about classical pragmatism is that it gets going at a time when philosophy is becoming institutionalized, and there are so many changes happening in America in the wake of the Civil War, with changing university structures with the rise of Darwinian science. It's just an incredibly intellectually rich time. So in there, we find the pragmatists getting going in the 1860s with their metaphysical club. And we find figures like Charles Peirce, William James, Nicholas St. John Green, Chauncey Wright, meeting and talking about all of the most current scientific advances. A lot of these fellows were also what they thought of as laboratory men, scientifically trained, and making sense of how one can be a philosopher in a natural world. Uh, This is not a new question. In some ways, Aristotle's question. But the sort of treatment it gets in pragmatism has to do with a new view of what experience is and a new view of what truth is. So when I think about classical pragmatism and what matters in it, I think about the method. Peirce referred to pragmatism as a principle and method of right thinking. And it's specific way of thinking about experience and about truth. So with respect to experience, the pragmatists are empiricists. They are not, however, empiricists of the strictly classical variety, although they extend that form of empiricism. There's a lot of continuity between folks like Locke and Hume and the pragmatists. They take experience to go beyond the deliverance of the senses. So when we think about experience, we might think about sense experience, smelling, tasting, vision, But the pragmatists have in mind things that go beyond that. So we can think about the possibility of an internal experience. Purse's favorite example is the mental manipulation of a diagram 
or an experience that one has in working through a thought experiment and coming across a surprising discovery about one's own view in respect to the thought experiment. And that view of experience allows them to say new things about moral life. The view of truth that I develop and defend the usefulness of in the book is Peirce's view of truth. He rather infamously said the truth is the end of inquiry, which was an expression he came to regret. But he held for all of his career, so far as I can tell, the true beliefs are beliefs that stand up to future recalcitrant experience come what may. Now, Peirce was an interesting character in this story. He and William James had a longstanding friendship, rivalry, academic love affair uh, that really has made for great stories. And the other folks that get in this tradition with them in the way that I tell the story in the book are John Dewey and Clarence Irving Lewis. And can you, can you tell us a little bit? I take it that part of the story about Purse's connection both to James and to Dewey, um, we'll talk about Lewis separately in a moment, involves a kind of wrangle over, over truth. Is that right? Uh, I would say that's right, but also wrangling in general. A wrangling is a good way of characterizing the Peirce-James relationship. And every Peirce scholar owes a debt of gratitude to William James for Peirce having got as much work done as he did and not having the heat shut off every winter because he was absolutely destitute. Uh, but they had a way of dealing together that came out of difference in personality, differences in view of how philosophy should proceed. Peirce at one point referred to himself as the table of contents, a snarl of twine. And he was contrasting himself with James, who he thought was so living and so vital. In one of Santayana's reminiscences of William James, he talks about how he always wore a, a brightly striped tie. And one just cannot imagine Purse in a brightly striped tie. No. So they had very different personalities and different views about what was important. Uh, so it's unsurprising that we would characterize it as a wrangle, but it's also a really rich resource for trying to work through what the most effective conception of truth in the pragmatist tradition is. And can you just fill in some of the details? So I take it that Peirce was, at least some in some places, Peirce seemed kind of offended <laughs> at some of the ways James articulated his thoughts about truth. That is true. Uh, after, I believe it was The Meaning of Truth was published, Peirce wrote to James that he was even more upset than he had been after the publication of The Will to Believe, which he thought was injurious. He thought the meaning of truth was even worse, uh, something, something akin to just you know, jumping the shark in epistemology, basically. <laughs> and this is because he, Peirce thought that the, the idea of truth being something that has cash value or works, um, these are some of James's more unfortunate metaphors, uh, that this was what, unscientific or not objective enough? I think insufficiently objectivist is probably the fair characterization. And to be fair to James, there are moments where he seems to fully acknowledge that he's, he's treating truth in a way that we might think of as polysemous. There's more than one thing uh, latching, that we're latching onto when we use the word truth. Sometimes what we mean is this sort of interpersonal or objective standard that is holding down our inquiries beyond our own narrow interests. And sometimes he seems to be saying something more subjectivist. So one of the things that I try to do in the book is to show that James really does have both of these notions of truth. So sometimes he sounds just like Peirce, and that's when Peirce is happiest. And at other times uh, he's saying 
that, you know, a true idea is one on which we can ride or that a true idea is one that carries us to our desired end. So he's interested in doxastic efficacy, you know, being able to make things true by believing them. And Peirce thinks that reality is always going to be conjoined in some important way with a theory of truth. Good. A little bit about Dewey now, because um, I take it that Dewey's innovation, at least on this sort of um, thread that runs through the, uh, the, the the ongoing wrangle between these three uh, characters, Dewey jettisons the, well, at least in some places, gives the impression that he thinks that truth needs, as a concept, needs to be jettisoned and replaced with something about warrant. Yeah, that's it's interesting because the wrangle goes really, really far back when it comes to Purse and Dewey. Dewey avoided taking Purse's logic seminar at Johns Hopkins, which is the only place Purse ever had an academic job for five short years. At the same time, Dewey was a grad student there. And then by the time Dewey's 1938 logic, a theory of inquiry came out, he was thanking Purse for teaching him more about logic than anyone else. So there's a sort of strange back and forth between Dewey being attracted to Purse's ideas, but not actually wanting to deal with Purse. We would probably all be in the same boat, I suspect. <laughs> well, I don't know. There might be a few purse apologists who, who would beg to differ, but the, perhaps, perhaps. But do did think that we could replace uh, the notion of truth in a lot of our practices of inquiry with a notion of warranted assertability. And so the idea of warrant is really an interesting one because warrant is something you get from someone else not from the world, not from reality, but from social interactions. Right. Um, but do you think, though, that this Persian, what would divide the, or what would pit the Persian against um, the warranted assertability theorist is, again, something about objectivity? Yes. So this is one of the sort of fault lines in classical pragmatism that has reverberations down into the pragmatism of the 21st century, where we see people sort of lining up as either pragmatists or neo-pragmatists, depending on how they think about this issue of truth and objectivity. And in the book, I try, you know, to the best of my ability to find the unity. These folks all care about truth and experience, and they all come to care, although Peirce does this very late, about moral life. So I think that the agreement uh, and the methodological agreement is very important, but there's no denying that when you sort of get down into the weeds of the interchanges between these people, that there is a lot of disagreement about truth specifically, because some think that an objective standard is necessary and some do not. So, good. Let's move on to uh, the ethics, uh, the value theoretic uh, aspects of the, the historical uh, part of the book. Now, I take it that there's more than just a little irony uh, in the thought that Peirce should be a central player in a book about value theory in any sense, that Peirce himself seems to, at some places, at least uh, even explicitly say that, you know, vital matters or moral questions are just not questions fitting for a philosopher. Yeah, that's a very fair question, and certainly it's a reaction that some people will have to opening the volume and seeing that there's a chapter about person, such a long chapter at that. Why does that happen? Right. <laughs> certainly, when if you were you know to Google pragmatist ethics, your first hit is going to be William James, uh, followed swiftly by John Dewey, and you probably would hit Jane Addams, George Herbert Mead, maybe even Josiah Royce before you would start 
running into people thinking this way about purse. This has been interesting in purse scholarship recently because there is more attention to what we now think of as his normative thought. But purse himself, you know, was writing daily for 50 years and his system was constantly evolving. He didn't come to see the idea of moral philosophy as important at all until around the turn of the century. So we have four decades of work where he's saying things like there's no place for ethics in the laboratory, uh, vital matters aren't the purview of the scientists and the philosopher is a form of scientist. And so it might seem, well, this is a hopeless, a hopeless idea to think that Peirce could tell us something about ethics. But Peirce, probably totally unbeknownst to himself, was laying a lot of the groundwork that the other fellows in this tradition, so James, Dewey, and Lewis, uh, were able to easily pick up and repurpose for ethical theorizing. He himself did not get very far. He started talking about the normative sciences, and by the time he gave his Harvard lectures in 1903, he had begun to see that ethics was a place where one could conduct an inquiry. But it is fair to say, in some ways, Peirce is really the anti-hero of the book. He gives us a view of truth. He gives us a view of experience. He's there developing the methodology of classical pragmatism, but he doesn't do value theory until very late in his life and then only very incompletely. Good. Um, now, I take it that the, the the historical account that you want to give sort of starts with these these dual insights uh, uh, that we find in Peirce about truth and uh, experience and something about the importance of a certain kind of principle in inquiry. Um, and the story that you want to tell is, you know, James picks, you know, James picks up um, part of the Persian view and develops it in a particular way that makes some advance that is um, uh, positive, that can be retained, even though it's got um, deficiencies. And you tell a similar story about Dewey, that Dewey, too, picks up something central that we find in Peirce, develops it in a crucial and important way, but then takes a, a wrong turn with it at some place. Um, can you sort of quickly run us through that sort of how the the, the idea of a pragmatist moral theory um, gets developed by James and by Dewey in a way that brings them back to Peirce, but still um, is dissatisfying on your account? So what they both share with Peirce is the commitment to the idea that the way to go about learning about moral life is through inquiry. And so the naturalized model of inquiry that Peirce develops in a pair of his most famous papers, The Fixation of Belief and How to Make Our Ideas Clear, suggests that the only way to get beliefs that are any good at all, by our own lights in terms of being satisfied with them ourselves, and with respect to the job of such beliefs, which is to guide us through our lives, we have to be inquirers. And Peirce was resistant, as I had said earlier in his career, to the idea that you could really inquire into a moral question at all. What would be at the end of such an inquiry wouldn't be the truth, but just a mess of sentiments or something like that. And so I think James is right to say that any community of inquiry is also automatically a moral community. The people in it are moral agents. There's no getting away from this bent of conscious life that has to do with goodness and badness and evaluation. So in sharing their naturalism, I think in some places James is actually better at accounting for the parts of human experience that are completely tangled up with and inseparable from valuation. 
So we find James in The Moral Philosopher and the Moral Life, which is one of his most brilliant papers, saying that if you have two souls on a rock, you have a moral community. And I think that's right. At first, just was not interested in this way of thinking about human agency as being inevitably moral early in his career. And then we find Dewey. I mean, Dewey is an incredibly prolific writer, which is a joy to those who love Dewey and a frustration to those who are looking for the best parts of Dewey to wade through 37 volumes. But what he does really effectively is democratize the idea of inquiry. He says inquiry is the lifeblood of crafts and professions. So he wants to go really to the other end of the spectrum where Peirce is saying, you know, inquiry is for the scientist about matters that have no vital importance, where we can wait forever to find out what the truth looks like. And then we find Dewey saying, inquiry is everywhere all the time. We're all doing it. It's our sort of natural mode as epistemic agents in the world. Now, let me ask explicitly about Lewis. So if Peirce is sort of one central plank of the story that, or the positive account that you uh, turn to give in part two of the book, which we'll get to in a moment, Lewis is the sort of the other bookend of the story, right? Where um, Lewis on your account, first of all, is um, a pragmatist in the full sense, um, which is uh something that I take it some people would dispute, um, although Lewis himself seemed uh, to conceive of himself in that way, um, and that Lewis is the the philosopher in the classical pragmatist tradition who most fully grasps the um, the potency of some of the Persian resources that had yet been yet to be developed. Can you tell us a bit about Lewis? And is, let me just ask the maybe I'll just ask the more general question. You know what what role is Lewis playing in the history of pragmatism on your account? Lewis is a fascinating figure. When I was writing my master's thesis on Peirce, Eric Dayton, who was supervising me, said, "Oh, you should really read about Lewis." I think he knew that I had sort of a, a Kantian affliction and thought that Lewis might be a way of resolving it. And uh, so he had put me onto this book by Murray Murphy, which was very recent at that time. I think it came out in 2005, called C.I. Lewis, The Last Great Pragmatist. Right. And, you know, the very title will raise the hackles of a lot of Dewey scholars who think, look, Dewey is the last great pragmatist. Who's this guy? Mm -hmm. uh, but his pragmatist credentials are impeccable. He studied at Harvard. As an undergraduate, he took the seminar on the Battle of the Absolute, taught by James and Royce. And he had exposure to both of them in considerable volume as an undergraduate. By the time he did his PhD at Harvard, Ralph Barton Perry had joined the faculty, as had George Santayana. So he took a seminar on Kant with Perry and a seminar, I believe, on metaphysics with Santayana. And he was trained by this whole generation of classical pragmatists. He was also then hired by Harvard after a year away at Berkeley. And when he was hired, they put him in the same room as Peirce's manuscript remains. So mm -hmm. Royce had arranged to buy the manuscripts from Peirce's widow, Juliet, and they just stuck Lewis in the room with the boxes of manuscripts with the idea. Must have been a lot of boxes. A lot of boxes. Okay. He makes this joke that uh, it's clear that Peirce didn't believe in such conveniences as files or wastebaskets. <laughs> so, you know, here he is with his mass of papers, and clearly the thought was maybe he'll get interested in this in this mess and make something out of it for us. 
And he did get interested in the mess and he made something out of it for all of us, uh, not necessarily to Harvard's benefit because someone else wound up editing the collected papers. But he became completely fascinated with Peirce and came to think that some of the reasons he thought James mistaken as a graduate student were explained by Peirce's differences with James. So in a way, we see sort of Lewis is closing the circle. He is in many ways a Percian. He's closer to Kant as a pragmatist than either James or Dewey. And so we find ideas like objectivity, truth, the notion of a regulative assumption are really prominent in Lewis's thought as they were in Peirce's and as they were not as prominent in James and Dewey. And I guess it's also, uh, am I right to think that um, at points in his career, Peirce himself thinks of him thinks of himself as a Kantian. Is that right? Oh, there's moments in the collected papers. It's the only place I have ever seen Kant and the word utters in the same sentence is Peirce. When he, <laughs> when I was a babe in philosophy, uh, my bottle was filled from the utters of Kant. So he was completely steeped in Kant's view early in his philosophical career. He thought memorably that Kant was a confused pragmatist. And so when you think about sort of how some of the trajectories of pragmatism as it's branched off have gone, one side of the story is a sort of a Kantian story where we find Peirce, Josiah Royce, and C.I. Lewis. And the contrast then with James's um, often quoted remark that the way forward in philosophy is not through Kant, but around him. Yes. Uh, is a way of understanding, I guess, the wrangle. Um, And can you say a little bit about, so Lewis, I take it, is also an important sort of bookend for the historical uh, uh, part of the book because Lewis writes a fairly major (laughs) uh, treatise that when we go back and look at it today, um, looks a lot like what counts as metaethics in contemporary philosophy. Is that right? Absolutely. So Lewis's two big books were the 1929 Mind and the World Order. And by that time, he's calling himself a conceptual pragmatist. Then we get the 1946 Analysis of Knowledge and Valuation, which is basically a meta-ethical treatise. And that book enjoyed some popularity when it was published. And now these days, it seems like almost no one reads it anymore. And I find this puzzling. There's reasons, I think, why Lewis has fallen out of favor, although he's enjoying a bit of a renaissance right now. But it wasn't just analysis of knowledge and valuation. He says in his little uh, intellectual autobiography for the Library of Living Philosophers volume in his honor, that from the earliest days of his academic career, he had thought of ethics as the most important branch of philosophy. So this is a huge departure from Peirce. He had always thought ethics was important, but he was going about his study of ethics systematically. What do I need to say first about knowledge, about conscious activity, about rational agency? Now I can start to say things about valuation. So by 1946, he had already been working on ethics for at least 10 years. He had some early papers in the 30s, and he kept working on ethics until his death in the 60s. He had draft upon draft of incomplete volumes on normative theory when he died. And can you tell us, um, uh, give us a sort of a, a summary of, you know, what does what Lewis's view look like in ethics? So one of the things that sets him apart from a lot of what's happening in what you might think of as sort of analytic value theory at that point in the 20th century is that he is a staunch cognitivist. 
So he is of the view that moral statements express beliefs and that they are truth apt. They're the kind of thing that can be true or false and that some of them are, in fact, true. Now, that's an important part. So yeah. that he's, he's not an error theorist. Exactly. Right? He dodges the error theorist who says, well, sure, those are truth apt. But as a matter of fact, it's all just a tissue of falsehoods. He thinks we can rationally hope to get it right and that that should be what we're doing in the exercise of our rational agency. So this is clearly out of step with sort of uh, Ayer's emotivism, Stevenson's emotivism, and a lot of the shift towards a really philosophy of language driven way of doing metaethics that becomes really popular around the turn of the century. We find him seeming at some points like a throwback. But then if we look at his views now, it seems like these have so much contemporary currency and in spots where some of our contemporary debates might be getting a bit bogged down uh, by distinction upon distinction, we can go back to a view like Lewis's that's rooted in epistemological commitments and think about what that metaethics could look like now. Good. So why don't we move then? That looks like a, a nice segue to the positive account uh, that you develop uh, in part two of the book. Um, and you're mainly concerned in part two of the book to work out a further uh, a view that further develops what you find most valuable in Lewis. And in particular, you're concerned with two central questions in metaethics. One is the one we were just talking about, um, how to make sense of um, or how to give an account of cognitivism or um, how to defend cognitivism. In, in ethics. Um, can you tell us uh, how the pragmatist can be a cognitivist? Sure. This is a part of the of the book where I feel like I'm most sort of out on a limb. Uh, and so I hope that this will be a conversation starter with some of my fellow pragmatists who are not so persuaded that this is the way to think about things. But my thought is that cognitivism and pragmatism make a very natural pair because the account of truth that we get from Peirce, filtered through uh, James and Dewey in their own ways, and sort of revived in Lewis, and the account of experience that all of the classical pragmatists developed sort of on the heels of American transcendentalism and classical empiricism, are good, useful ways of thinking about these core notions that should be influential in our metaethical theories. So when we think about what it means for a moral judgment to be true, you know, I, I see you. It's, all, it's always animals being abused in these cases. Uh, let's try to make it a human instead. So suppose I see you kicking a roadie backstage at a concert, and I say to you, you know, that is bad. There's something very intuitive about the idea that I could be right, that that is bad. Roadies are not liable for this abuse, although perhaps in some ways they're strange specimens of the human species. <laughs> or uh, I might be wrong and it's fully deserved. And this roadie has this, you know, done this terrible thing to you. And this sort of uh, retribution is the only justice you can secure for yourself. It's very intuitive, I think, for most people to say moral judgments like kicking a roadie is bad could be true or false. The worry comes with the question that soon follows, well, what do you mean by true? What's the truth maker? And so part of what people become concerned about is that as soon as you say moral statements can be true or false, you get into the game of inflationary metaphysics, where you have to start positing entities to be the moral reality stuff that makes sense of the true claims. Because of the way the pragmatist theory of truth works, we avoid, I think, in large part, this whole 
complication. You can say instead what it is to say that a moral judgment is true is to say that it's the kind of judgment that will stand up to future experience. You're not going to change your mind about this later. It's stable. It guides your actions in a reliable way and allows you to have a place in the community that uh, is not fraught by constant conflict because you're doing something everyone else thinks is wrong. And I love the way David Wiggins puts this. He says, look, there is nothing else to think. So when you've arrived at a true belief, whether it's in morality and some other matter, you have come to a place where there is just nothing else to think. And so that sort of account of truth can fit nicely with what is, I think, the common sense intuition that moral discourse is doing something, in part because the claims in it are trying to be true. Let me let me ask just one sort of follow up about that. So I take it that even a non-cognitivist of a certain variety can concede that when we wield moral judgments, we behave as if we are um, trading in the kinds of things that have a truth value. But um, those sentences or speech acts or judgments actually having a truth value is something quite different. Sure. So this is uh, the sort of move that one might expect. Sure, we act that way, uh, but so what? We could just be completely confused about what we're doing. Part of what I focus on in the chapter about truth is the phenomenology of first-person moral judgment. And here I think that the pragmatists focus on experience as part of how we come to know about what's good and bad is very useful. We find when we ourselves make moral judgments that the activity of offering an assertion, a verdict about a moral matter is one where we ourselves are putting ourselves under a truth norm. So regardless of whether or not someone else is going to interrogate me about my moral judgment, when I myself make it, what I take myself to be doing is aiming at the truth. And so the burden of proof here, I think, is on the non-cognitivist to say, yes, I see the propositional surface of moral discourse. Yes, I see that it would make sense that we could have a notion of truth that explains that propositional surface in a, in a way that doesn't involve reliance on heavy-duty metaphysics. And yes, I see that you really feel like you're doing that, but you're just wrong on all three counts. What would the pragmatists say about that? I mean, is there some, is there some pragmatist thought about the limits of philosophizing and that, you know, if there's elements of our practice that can't be thought, we can't think our way out of, you know, there's nothing more to think about um, certain kinds of topics and that's all the philosophical backdrop that they need. Is that the? I think that I, I would not be inclined to say that the pragmatist goes that way uh, as a matter of course. I think that the, way of engaging with our practices that is so much a part of pragmatist methodology uh, is one of the things that makes it an interesting fit for contemporary metaethics. So when we ask ourselves, where should I start? This has become kind of a central question of metaethics. Should I start with uh, reasons? What is a reason? How do reasons hang together? Do they always work one way? Are there different kinds of reasons? Are moral reasons special? And from a theory of reasons, we build up to a theory of reasoning and judgment. And then whatever we wind up saying about truth to make the view of reasons go fine, uh, as long as the view of reasons works out. 
that's sort of what I would think of as a metaphysics first approach. You're thinking about the status of a reason and how it relates to reality. But you could also say, well, look, here we are, moral agents trying to live moral lives, and we find ourselves in the habit, uh, pragmatists are big on habits, of making moral judgments. What could possibly make sense of that? And we can give an account that makes sense of making moral judgment that appeals to notions of truth and experience that don't require us to go down a very heavy-duty rabbit hole about the nature of things that we aren't able to have direct experience of, like reason. Okay. Um, so, good. Um, let's turn to the the the, the second um, sort of major meta-ethical um, issue that you try to shed some pragmatist light on, which is um, the issue about particularism, about whether there are principles that can be true or false um, about uh, moral philosophy, whether moral philosophy needs principles or whether the only things that could possibly be candidates for a truth value are particular judgments about the rightness or wrongness of an action under some certain um, circumstance. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the debate first and then which which might be a little bit less familiar to some of our our listeners um, and then tell us about what the pragmatists would say? Sure. I think you're you're right in saying that this debate is a, perhaps a bit more esoteric, but it's actually a part of metaethics right now that's really vibrant and quite interesting. So in the cognitivism debate, we saw moral statements are questioned. Are they the kind of thing that can express beliefs and be true or false? Or are they the kind of statements that express some non-cognitive state, like an attitude, and it isn't the kind of thing that can be true or false? With the debate between particularists and generalists, the focus is specifically on moral principles. So particularism is roughly the view that general principles are just not required to make moral thought judgment, moral thought and judgment possible or rational. So when I make my judgment that you shouldn't kick a roadie, I don't need to appeal to some more general principle that could make sense of my, my particular judgment at that moment in time. I can just deal with the facts of the case in front of me as a one-time moral situation. The contrast is with generalism, which holds that moral principles in some sense are either necessary, that's the strongest form of generalism, or useful to living a shared moral life, such that when I make a moral judgment, what I'm doing in part is appealing to some other standard. Right. Um, good. Particularism sounds... Uh, I'm just revealing a uh, perhaps a piece of ignorance. Particularism has always sounded to me like a crazy view. <laughs> <laughs> Is it crazy? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> I don't think that it's crazy. I think that particularism actually offers an important attempt to grapple with what we mean when we say that context matters. So if you think back, way back to the Nicomachean Ethics, where we find Aristotle listing all of the things you have to know in order for an action to be voluntary. There's this great description of, you know, who's doing it? What are they doing with it? How are they doing it, gently or hard? There's this suggestion that in order to know even whether your own action is under your control, you need to have a huge amount of information. And I think particularism pushes us to have that kind of sensitivity 
about situations. You really need to know the facts of this case in particular before you can offer a judgment. So I think there is some wisdom in it, but I think that it's insistence that uh, moral principles are a mistake is the mistake. I see. Okay. So um, that, that helps a good deal in helping me get a sense of what would motivate somebody um, to hold a particularist view. Can you tell us now about how pragmatists navigate this, this debate? Sure. Although let me just add one further thing about the motivation for particularism from a different sure. direction, the, the non-Aristotelian, but the contemporary direction. One reason to be a particularist is that you have a particular view about how reasons function. So if you thought that something being a reason in one case was no evidence that it would be a reason in a different case, and that reasons even could have changeable valences such that in situation one, X is a reason to do whatever, and in situation two, X is not a reason or is a reason against doing whatever, reasons are changeable in this way, you would think that every new situation requires you to assess every reason anew. So you couldn't rely on the idea of reasons as stably standing one way or another in moral judgment to help you as a heuristic. You would have to check every time I a see. reason landed. So that's the sort of thing that motivates contemporary particularists like Jonathan Dancy. But back to the point about pragmatism. Uh, it has seemed, I think, to a lot of people, because pragmatism is focused on practice and on context, uh, some strains of pragmatism are really interested in historicity. It has seemed like particularism must be the thing that goes with pragmatism because it calls us to attend to context and to be careful in our judgments. But I think that's actually not true and that it's not well supported when we look at the text of classical pragmatism where I think we find strong generalist tendencies, that is to say, people arguing for the importance of principles in one way or another. Good. So, um, so the pragmatist then is going to have the, what is it, the weaker or the, the 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 less stringent version of generalism? Is that right? I should think so. And so I I should say here also, this is the point uh, of my own positive view that I think is still really not in flux. I think generalism is the view that a pragmatist should have and the right view. Full stop. But I do think that the question of the necessity of moral principles is, is remains an interesting question to me. So when we think about why we need such principles, there's kind of easy answers. Well, we need them for education. We need them for correction. And that seems right. But you might think that principles used for education and correction are akin to the sort of Wittgensteinian ladder that you climb to kick away. You need them at the beginning, and then once you've become morally mature, you don't need them anymore. But if the morally mature agent requires principles as a part of their reasoning structure, uh, forever and ever, amen, that's a different kind of story. So there's the easy necessity, the sort of onboarding into morality. We need principles to get us here, and then we don't need them anymore because we're savvy. And then there's the you know slightly more robust version. We need principles because that's how moral deliberation operates. And then the nature of the principles themselves is a further question. So I'm compelled here by, I think, both Person Lewis in different ways. 
Peirce is infuriating on these points, as you might expect, because he doesn't say so much about ethics, but then he'll say things that sound incredible and you want to know more. But of course, there is no more. (laughs) So he'll say things like uh, he believes in the reality of generals and he believes in the eternal life of certain ideas, ideas that are so important to cognitive agency and sort of the unfolding of a human life as an inquirer that you have to have these ideas. And among those ideas are truth and right. I mean, he never says anything about right. So wow. you wind up wondering, hey, where did that go? Yeah. And then on Lewis's side, he is concerned with the possibility of universal imperatives. And to some pragmatists that will you know, just put their backs up right away, uh, universalizing anything sounds like it couldn't possibly be right. But if there is some sort of shared nature that is enacted in cognitive agency and part of what we are doing in our conscious life is pursuing the good and avoiding the bad, it might make sense that there are imperatives that could be the sort of thing that we should all endorse and take as principles. And Lewis himself, I guess, had sort of two two principles in mind, right? One of them was one of them like don't harm people or something. Uh, he, his look sort of oddly logical, I want to say, perhaps that's the wrong way to put it. Perhaps it won't seem odd to some people, but uh, he is really focused on consistency uh, and taking care of yourself and others. And so they're sort of principles that are so general that you might think, well, how could anyone deny that this is an important principle? Is it really a moral principle at all? But if you think that, you know, normativity goes all the way down in the natural life of a cognitive agent, then they will be normative principles. So Lewis and Peirce here are, of course, closer to Kant than we would find James or Dewey. Lewis also has this pragmatic conception of the a priori, which is one of his sort of signal contributions to philosophy that if anyone knows about Lewis and they know more than about S5, they probably know about the pragmatic conception of the a priori. Right. And so in his view that we choose which concepts we bring to bear on the massive experience that we encounter in our lives, I think he's advocating for something very like picking your principles. And so if you can pick your principles, that pushes back against some of the normative theories where generalism has been strongest. So, of course, Kantianism, universal moral imperative in the form of the categorical imperative, but also Mill's utilitarianism, where there is just one rule despite all of the many things that that rule tells you to do. So both of those sort of Mill and Kant are textbook generalists and the pragmatists, all of them take issue with various things that Mill and Kant say about ethics. Even Lewis thinks that Kant is mistaken about his imperatives. So there's a sort of push pull here of you need principles. We seem to use them. Let's see how they could be justified versus one and the same principle for everyone until the end of time. No exceptions. I see. I see. Um, okay. So let me ask one more um, sort of question about the meta ethics. And then, um, uh, and then I, I, I have a question um, about um, whether pragmatists should be concerned with meta ethics at all. But um, let me ask a prior question, which is about um uh, some recent developments uh, within pragmatism that uh, you're familiar with um, uh, associated with Q Price and uh, more recently even um, Simon Blackburn has started um, thinking of himself as a pragmatist. Um, 
And this is um, a, uh, a line of thought that allies pragmatism with some um, uh, ambitious, we might say, uh, conception of uh, expressivism. Um, can you tell us a little – this makes a brief appearance in the book, but I, I think it's, uh, it's a really interesting and definitely hot issue uh, among the pragmatists. So um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this, this newfangled uh, kind of expressivist view that is claiming allegiance with pragmatism on some of the very points that um, you seem to be most attracted to? Right. So I, it is indeed newfangled. Uh, and it, that's, I think, an important thing to emphasize. Expressivism has become very sophisticated. And I mean, Blackburn's quasi-realism in particular is an example, but also Gibbard's norm expressivism. These are forms of expressivism that are very carefully worked out, very detailed programs. So we're not talking about sort of Ayer-style bouillet emotivism anymore. Um, nice. We're talking about thinking about moral judgments as expressing commitment to norms, uh, whether those are the norms of one's particular culture or the norms of conversation simpliciter. And so the way that Blackburn and Price are sort of taking this, Price calls his view global expressivism, is towards a theory of utterances, I would say, uh, that is meant to be totally holistic. So that's what puts the global in Price's global expressivism. What I want to say about how statements work is going to not carve morality off as special. All of the judgments are going to be of the same form and they're going to express commitments. What this allows one to do is sidestep meta metaphysics basically completely. Uh, so you're focusing on conversational norms or norms of assertion in the particular context in which you're working, whether those be scientific or moral contexts. And there is no need to posit sort of any type of reality. So Blackburn referring to his view as a quasi-realism, I think, is exactly the right way to think about it. You're operating in your conversational practice as if, you said this earlier, as if we can say these things uh, in some robust way, but there's no sort of undergirding metaphysical structure that stands as the guarantor for the truth claims. And is that the part that, that you bristle against? I think really the thing that I find most strange about it is the attitude that that view takes with respect to truth. So Price says that truth is a conversational norm and we don't need to say more about it. We do need the truth norm. Uh, we, we can't rest with assertability on his view. And he takes issue with Rorty on this point, saying, you know, we do need a notion of truth, but... That notion of truth runs out at the end of conversation. There's nothing interesting about truth itself except the role that it plays in this conversation that we're having. And Blackburn seems to start with the claim that uh, moral statements are expressive and break down uh, that view to the point where he then reconstructs a notion of truth. And my thought is that if you need a notion of truth, why not just start with truth as it's involved in our daily practices, including our moral practices and our practices of moral discourse. Right. But Peirce is famous um, in uh, both of the, the two papers that you mentioned uh, for thinking that the conception of truth that um, that he's proposing has a, um, a kind of realist 
uh, presupposition built into it. Is that right? So presupposition is, you know, it's one way of thinking about it. He thinks that the hypothesis of the existence of reality is a regulative assumption of all inquiry. And so he gets this idea from Kant, right, that there are certain uh, guiding principles that make sense of our activity. And if you're going to be an inquirer, you had better believe that there is some chance of getting at the truth with respect to that domain of inquiry. And in some sense, you think that there's something real that is something outside of yourself that isn't purely constructed by you, despite the importance of your cognitive interactions with it. And so when we're thinking about truth in a Persian pragmatist view, truth is in some sense basic. It's a notion that's so important in our practices that it deserves our attention. And when we you know, flip over the rock of truth, we find reality is always implicated. And we don't need to say some of the things that Peirce does actually say about reality, such as that generals are real, capital R real, but we do find ourselves needing to make reference to a world outside of ourselves. There is more than our conversation. There is what our conversation responds to. I see. I see. Good. And I take it that that's the that's the, the, the part that the expressivist wants to try to avoid having to say too much about. Right. Is that right? Or may, maybe they deny it, but either they deny it or they just try to not talk about the, the whatever. You know, they don't like the thought that moral discourse responds to anything. Yes. And additionally, they wind up with a view of truth that is so deflationary that it no longer looks like the notion of truth that we employ in our actual practices. Right. Got it. Got it. Good. Um, so let me ask one last question about the book. Um, so the book ends with a chapter um, called Making Metaethics Matter. I take it that some listeners or some people are familiar with uh, pragmatism, especially um, uh, classical pragmatism and maybe some you know, neo-pragmatists of, of the, the late 20th century, Rorty and so on. We'll just wonder why a pragmatist would think that Metaethics is um, worth philosophical attention. Can you say something about about that? Right. I think it's an interesting point of divergence in sort of pragmatist thinking. Pragmatists pretty much all agree, if they agree about anything, that practices are important and worth our philosophical attention. So what it is that we do in our practices of deliberation, our erection of institutions, our shared governance, the ways that we operate in the world is the kind of thing we are. Those practices, all pragmatists will say those matter. And that is something that philosophical attention should be directed towards because clarifying the concepts that we rely on in those practices or coming to see those practices for what they really are, uh, having a kind of intellectual integrity about them and then improving them is what philosophy is for. So there's this sort of common core, I think, that a lot of pragmatists, when they try to describe the view that we can be said to share, will say, that's the thing I care about, understanding and improving our practices. Our practices are shot through with normativity, with valuation, with truth, with reliance on experience. And I think that the kinds of structures that we're concerned to improve, uh, you know, institutions of justice, for example, rely in very deep ways on meta-ethical commitments. 
And so this is, in a way, again, sort of flipping the rock. I said earlier, if you flip over the rock of truth underneath, you find reality. Something similar happens with the things that we care so much about in our shared life. Underneath them are presuppositions and commitments about the nature of morality itself. And that's what metaethics is, the study of morality itself. Excellent. Um, and so um, would you go so far as to say that maybe some um, more uh, radical pragmatist who is a um, uh, who, who, who would want to say um, that metaethics is kind of like metaphysics. It's just a bog that one gets um, mired in and best to leave it um, uh, best to avoid it and to do only applied, you know, ethics. Um, it, would you be comfortable saying there's no way to do applied ethics without implicating views that are meta-ethical that need to um, that one needs to get right uh, in order to get the applied stuff right? Would that be right? I think that I'm, I'm with you most of the way there. So Good. <laughs> <laughs> when when people say why don't we just leave meta-ethics aside, the response is well you can't. Uh, when we think about how ethical theory works. There's this temptation to think that the map that we draw on the board for our students in Introduction to Ethics that cleanly separates applied ethics from normative ethics and meta-ethics is somehow true. But of course it's not. It's an idealization. And when we engage in applied ethics, we are applying the commitments of normative ethics. In both spheres, we're also overlapping with what we think in meta-ethics. We couldn't possibly make sense of some of the things we're told to do by normative theories without the idea that it makes sense to tell people to do stuff. And then the question is, well, in light of what could that possibly make sense? Now we're in the conversation about metaethics already. I should say, I think metaethics to some extent has done this to itself by loving its uh, ascent to the abstract. And so there's a lot of sort of interesting puzzles in metaethics but the puzzles are important because they do undergird our shared institutions and practices and the things that we do without even thinking about it. So if we get too involved in the puzzles as puzzles and lose sight of why metaethics matters, we wind up with something that wouldn't be interesting to the pragmatist. Right. Got it. Well, Diana, you've been uh, very generous with your time. I thank you for, for sharing your thoughts about uh, your new book. But um, what, what's next for you? Well, this is, in a way, it's the prequel to this book. Uh, so I've, I'm working on a new manuscript now that takes up the history of ethical theory in the pragmatist period. And part of what I'm hoping to demonstrate there is implicit in this book, and I think want, I want to make it more explicit, these pragmatists all look stronger when we consider them as a movement where we can smooth out some of the rough edges and disagreements between them, which are real, but get overable, and <laughs> look at the movement as a movement. Here is a view of human life as naturalistic, empiricist, concerned with the phenomenology of everyday experience, and concerned with getting things right and wrong at a tumultuous time in intellectual history. And there's tons of interesting stuff going on here beyond First, James, Dewey, and Lewis. We have Jane Addams. We have Josiah Royce. Uh, Ella Lyman Cabot, who I'm just starting to learn about now. George Herbert Mead. These thinkers are all doing 
ethical theory in different spheres. And so there's a huge amount of overlap between them and some differences. And this period, I think, deserves scrutiny as um, a movement making sense of morality in the wake of Darwin. Tom Herka has this terrific book out about the Sidgwick to Ewing school and British moral philosophy at around the same time. And it's very clear that there's this thing happening there. And I want to point to America and say, look, there's this thing happening here, too. And it's really interesting. Well, great. Um, that sounds fantastic uh, and very promising. And um, certainly, uh, I think you're right that whatever the story, whatever the story is there, somebody needs to tell it um, because um, it hasn't been told uh, and is probably uh, important to know about. So uh, I look forward to reading that. Uh, but for now, uh, the book Toward a Pragmatist Metaethics, I recommend uh, to everyone listening uh, to take a look. Diana, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thanks for appearing on New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Diana Heaney of Fordham University. We were talking about her new book, Toward a Pragmatist Metaethics, published by Routledge. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. Thank you.